1: Matt Boudreaux.
0: Thanks, Chuck. Hey everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 417. You're listening to. My guest today is producer, engineer, and funk rock artist Pamela Parker. Pamela is based in San Francisco and she primarily works out of the historic Hyde Street studios. And we're going to talk all about her journey in music and audio. Pamela Parker coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about speaking to the right audience. For those of you that are using social media to promote what it is you do, you might ask yourself, am I promoting to the right audience? Why would I ask you to evaluate that? Because in some cases, you may be promoting to the same people that you're competing against for work. And I think it's probably not exactly a secret that many pro audio people follow other pro audio people. And you know, in social media, let's take Instagram for a second. If you are going through and choosing who you're gonna follow, you know, following other pro audio people, that's fine. They're probably gonna follow you back, but what if, let's say you're involved in music? What if instead you chose to follow musicians, bands, solo artists? And on top of that, what if you followed the record companies those people are on, whether they're Indies or majors? it's quite possible they might follow you back and therefore there's your audience. Now, I'm not saying that having an audience of pro audio people is a bad thing. I mean, if you are one of the folks out there who are promoting pro audio centric courses and ideas that you wanna share with your pro audio brothers and sisters, perfectly fine. But if you're trying to use your, in this case, I'm talking about Instagram, if you're trying to use your Instagram account to get work from musicians, then make sure you're following musicians. If you're trying to do it for film, make sure you're following directors and everybody else that's involved with film. You can tell I don't work on film because I just struggle to name who it is that you would be following. But people who work on film, you get the idea. Follow the people that you want to attract as your clients. I'm not saying don't follow your competitors because that's important too, but don't neglect the potential clients. Now, some people might say, well, I don't get any work off Instagram. Well, okay. Maybe examine what it is you're doing on Instagram because I definitely know people that get work off of Instagram. Instagram, strangely, is a place where people actually communicate. People send messages to one another and say, hey, I would like to work with you. What would that involve? Because picture says a thousand words, right? They see a a picture or a video and they're like, hmm, okay, that's interesting. And after a while of following you, they might get a sense of who you are as a person and they might realize, hey, I think this person might be the person that I should connect with and work with on my next project. So in a number of ways, It's a way for potential clients to vet you, to see if you're legit, to see if you're an asshole, to see if you are the right kind of person for their music, their film, whatever it is they're doing. So all things to consider. And I'll add this final thing on top of it. If you choose not to post on social media, that obviously is totally fine. And if there's one thing I learned from uh, David Kalmusky in his interview uh, a couple episodes ago, It's that whole concept of putting your head down and working and letting the work speak for itself. Some would argue that you can't post your way into a bunch of work. Your mileage may vary. So anyhow, that's it. Consider it. Think about it as usual. No hard, fast rules for me. Do what's right for you. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. It's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos... That is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I've used their 108 mic pres to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So, if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer. Because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to WorkingClassAudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me, and we can sit down and chat, coffee's in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Pamela Parker here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Pamela, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, great to have you here. We'll jump right in. Now, we met at the uh, Bay Area Audio Nerds Night Out at 25th Street Studios in Oakland, and former WCA guest Jamison Durr introduced us. I want to find out about your past first, as you know I typically do. Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in the D.C. area, Hmm. so right outside of D.C. in Kensington. So it's about a a mile from the D.C. line. Started piano at age five, and my mom was really into playing and keeping us musical, me and my brother. That's kind of where I started with music was piano, and then later I had a, a slew of instruments I went
0: through. Did you like piano?
1: Yeah, I loved it, and I actually think I liked it Extra because my brother and I would play Heart and Soul, the song with the two parts, the classic like duet. I had the most fun doing that with him.
0: (laughs) How did music progress for you throughout your teenage years and early adulthood? You mentioned other instruments. So,
1: yeah. So, you know, I was studying piano and then my parents, they split up and I changed schools. So I kind of stopped doing the piano lessons because they were at school. And then when my mom got, she got remarried and then my stepdad got relocated to Oklahoma. So, like, my whole life took a big turn from, you know, living in D.C. with kind of current things to going to Oklahoma where everything was like 10 years past.
0: Where everything is in the past?
1: It really was. I mean, people were wearing, like, penny loafers with dimes in them, you know. Wow. <laughs> in This really small town called Ponca City, Oklahoma. But when I went there, I actually started playing violin because when I was young, we would go to the Kennedy Center a lot. And I just remember one time really loving, you know, the orchestra and and meeting someone that played violin. And for whatever reason, I was fixated on playing violin. So I started playing violin in seventh grade and then in 10th grade. I really didn't like the teacher anymore because he was, he was like a curmudgeon teacher, right? He he didn't seem happy and then he was probably really frustrated working with a bunch of people that didn't care as much as he did about sounding good, you know? It's like we're all in high school and we're like, yeah, whatever, the violin. So I quit violin and bought a drum set with my life savings, which was probably about $1,000 at the time. And... I started playing drum set, and then my mom had a classical guitar, so she gave me that to kind of check out, and then when I was starting guitar, my brother, who's four years older than me, he was like, oh, you're doing guitar now, and I would see him in the summers because we were, like, split up from the parents being split up, so I would see him every summer, and he taught me nothing else matters on guitar one summer, and I thought, oh, this is pretty easy, you know, just the first part of that, and then... As time went on, I was teaching myself guitar and then finally got to college and it was like, oh, well, what am I going to major in, right? And I didn't really know. I went back to the East Coast for college after high school in Oklahoma. I thought, I got to get out of (laughs) here or I'm Mm going to get stuck here. So I left, went back to the D.C. area, went to University of Maryland College Park, and I studied a lot of things I was on the gymnastics team and the breakdance team and I did art. So I was really into metal work and like I was going to make my own major and do art business. But my dad was like, I don't know. Why don't you take a semester off and just soul search and figure out what you want to do? So I took a road trip with my best friend from high school, Kim Manning, And we went from Oklahoma to L.A. up to San Francisco and this Bay Area and Sonoma County, Sebastopol. And it was just I was there doing a jam with this band at the time called Granola Funk. And so members (laughs) of that band were there. And we were just all jamming. And I thought, oh, like, this is what I want to do with my life. Music. And that is really something that can change the world. It changes people's feelings. It makes people feel better. It could make them feel nostalgic. There's so many powerful ways to share with people, Mm -hmm. with music. So it was at that moment that I realized, oh, this is is what I want to do. And it came to me almost immediately when I took time off. And recently, I had been recording on this one little tape recorder thing where it's like a little square, just enough that the tape fits in. Mm -hmm. And I found... A bunch of my old tapes, my parents just moved out of their house and they were cleaning stuff up, like, come get all your stuff. (laughs) And I found these old tapes and one of them was that moment. The moment that I had this epiphany, this feeling that music was my calling, I found the recording of the jam of that moment. And so I just thought that was really cool.
0: Did you kind of relive that as you listened to that? Did you kind of transport mentally back to that spot?
1: A little bit. I just thought, oh, that's funny. What were we playing? (laughs) You know, I mean, it was a good enough jam, but listening back, I was like, wow. I mean, I had labeled it in everything jam with granola funk and like where we were. And so I just thought that was cool just to recently find that and be like, wow, I recorded the moment that I had this epiphany.
0: Yeah. I want to go back to Oklahoma for a second. It's got to be kind of a stark contrast from the DC area. Yeah. Moving to Oklahoma, you know, I'm from a small town in the Southwest, so I know all about how trends tend to trickle down a little slower to the middle part of the United States. Right. So when you were there after the move, I'm sure that you had some feelings that were not exactly positive about where you were at. Did that motivate you at all to think about the future? Because you were used to a life of... Coastal living, you know, to put it plainly. How did that affect you?
1: Well, I got made fun of a lot for my clothing. And I would say that was probably one of the biggest.
0: Well, you were from the future, right?
1: <laughs> I was from the future. And I i mean, I still have a unique style, I would call it, just something I'm not afraid to wear what I want. Mm-hmm. And I would always bring stuff back from going shopping in like Georgetown or whatever. And at these crazy places like Commander Salamander and these underground kind of more punk style Mm -hmm. scene in Georgetown. And I just remember I bought these vinyl pants, brought them back. I was so excited about them, but they look like shiny black, right? They were shiny vinyl. And I just remember people would be like, are you wearing trash bags? You know, and it would just be like, oh my God, these people have a really bad, Mm -hmm. like they don't even have good cut downs. It's just like growing up with an older brother, you learn a lot of, cut downs and ways to reply to those things. (laughs) But I just would laugh every time. So, I mean, I don't know if it motivated me to the future as much as I knew I wasn't going to stay there. Mm. But I used my time wisely while I was there. You know, I did a lot of dance classes and music classes and just tried to be active, you know, and have fun. And I did a lot of music. I continued with piano, too. I taught myself how to play Fiorelis over like a year or something.
0: And then you went back to DC for college, right?
1: Right. And then went to University of Maryland College Park. And then, like I said, after I had that epiphany moment where I was like, music is my calling, I realized I had had no formal training in music. So I couldn't get into a college for music. So I took a semester and I did voice lessons Hmm. with the idea that I was going to audition to get into college. So, my vocal coach, she taught me like, okay, you're going to have to sing this kind of a song and that kind of song, so let's get you prepped for that. So, basically I did that, then auditioned, got into a music school. I also my semester off where I was doing voice lessons. My dad suggested I get an internship somewhere, and I just thought, "Oh, I want to work at a recording studio because they're kind of in charge of the music. And if you're going to release music, you're going to go to a recording studio. And I wanted to be in control of my own destiny Mm -hmm. as an artist. And I liked working on music production. I think one time when I was like maybe 15 or 16 and we were at King's Dominion in Maryland, Virginia area, I did that go into the recording studio booth thing where you sing along to like a famous song. And I just remembered that I would listen to that tape And think, oh, like I could have sang that line better. I could have sang that line better. They only give you like one chance. Oh, yeah. And if you want to start over, you only get to start over once. So I think I did the thing and then I started over once. So it was like the one take that you do. And it was just like a spur of the moment thing. I wasn't planning to do this when I went there. So that was my first recording.
0: Yeah, and it plants a seed, though, I think subconsciously. Yeah. So tell me about your time in studios in D.C.
1: Well, just to kind of keep the I started an internship that semester where I was auditioning for college to get into music. I started at One World Studios. So I basically was just cold calling studios. Hey, can I intern? Hey, can I intern? I got one phone call back and that was it. (laughs) And it was from this studio, One World Studios. And um, I immediately started working there. They had a rehearsal studio. They also had a recording studio. Citizen Cope recorded one of his first big albums there, Hmm. actually, at One World Studios. The NBA, they licensed Let the Drummer Kick, which was one one of his biggest licensing songs. That was recorded at One World Studios. And I just remember hearing all the stories and meeting Cope. He was a really good friend of everyone's. He gave me a lot of inspiration, too. He brought me to Electric Lady Studios in New York, where I feel like I remember it really well. I'm sitting in Electric Lady Studios for this session, and I'm like, oh, wow, look, there's so many knobs on the board. What do they all do? And Cope was like, oh, it's actually really simple. Like, each row is the same, and it just repeats. And I thought, oh, my God, okay, that's not crazy. <laughs> that's that's kind of simple. And then after that I went on, I got like a vocal performance degree in college. And then I got a bachelor's degree, which was commercial music, which was technically recording production. Mm -hmm. So you did songwriting and producing and working in the studio. You did live recording, studio recording. We did surround sound mixing. And you had to audition to get into that school. So you also had to be musical. So I had a really a lot of great experiences singing with orchestras and recording orchestras and bands and stuff. So while I was working at One World Studios, I also finished my college degrees during that same time.
0: In your mind at that time, were you thinking, I'm going to lead a life of just music and this recording studio thing is just kind of a, a side thing that I'm just kind of biting my time with? Or were you starting to formulate the ideas of where you're at today, where you're doing all these different things?
1: Yeah, no, I definitely wanted to have a part of all the processes, but also work with other artists, too. Mm. I was using it, of course, for myself as an artist to be in control of my own destiny and know what's going on. And if I wanted something, I could tell somebody exactly what I wanted and be very specific. Mm. But then as a producer, I really love to work with artists as well, whereas I know what it's like to be an artist, but also what it's like to be a recording engineer. So it's kind of cool to see both sides and be able to help from both sides.
0: And there were two studios involved, right? There was Avalon and One World.
1: Right. So after college, I started managing Avalon Studios, which was in Bethesda. Okay. And it was there that I started recording my first solo album.
0: While you're the manager.
1: Yeah, while I was at Avalon Studios. And I worked I worked with Paul Miner, who was probably the first producer-producer that I hired to be my producer. He had written the first three songs on the Avatar album with Earth, Wind & Fire. Mm. So he was very successful, and he just so happened to be from Bethesda, you know, in that area in Maryland. And I just thought he was so smart. At one point, he was like, I need you to solo each of your vocals and listen to it. And I thought, "Oh, well, I mean, it sounds pretty good." And then <laughs> when we soloed <laughs> each background track, it was like, "Oh, dang. I got to redo those." <laughs> you know. So he he helped me even though you learn so much in school, you know, you obviously don't learn everything, and he gave me these ear training Exercises from David Lucas Berg to kind of train my ear to hear like exact perfect pitch based on using colors hmm. as a basis. And then there's a couple of theories with color and music. One is this one where you're listening and you hear a color. Therefore, if you're hearing it sound like yellow, you know that's a D because you have associated yellow with the note D. Hmm. So if I play like a D chord, it sounds so bright and like the sun to me. So I somehow associate that with yellow. But there's another theory of music with colors that I learned when I came out to San Francisco and I was interning with Maestro Curtis. He taught me about like sound healing and color theory, where C would be the red. So you would go, since there's seven notes in a scale and seven colors of the rainbow, it would be exactly C is red, and then it's red, orange, yellow, green, blue, purple, indigo going up. So he had a couple of his students that were studying, and they were doing an an album of sound healing. And so he would actually have us kind of experiment with making sure they had written the right song. And so we would listen, close our eyes, and then describe to him, like, what did we see? What Hmm. colors did we see? What images did we see? And it was very, really, really interesting. You know, I think that was one of the things... That brought me from the East Coast out here was just there was more layers to be uncovered.
0: Your time at Avalon as studio manager, mm-hmm. what were some of the takeaways on that side of it, on the studio and and business side of it that you picked up?
1: Well, that it was a tough business, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Yeah, and that the studio wasn't always booked when it was, it was, and when it wasn't, it wasn't they were building a new studio and a new room and a couple extra suites i know they did all that work eventually they closed like a lot of studios that was after i left
0: yeah like the studio is not booked all the time yet they're building two other rooms yeah that has red flags all over it
1: yeah they almost made it but you know i think i discovered that a lot of the studios i had worked at they had a kind of side hustle going on too Yeah, that I didn't really know about until later (laughs) in my careers there. And then I was like, oh, that's why you guys are still open. And um, that was very eye opening in that fact. And I feel like a lot of the studios that remain open, they do have some sort of like angel investor or the owner is helping on the months that are off.
0: Yeah. Am I misreading you or are you suggesting that they had a side hustle of drugs?
1: Oh no. No, no, not at all. I mean, I I can't say. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't really know for say, but I just always was like, hmm. Mm. There's got to be something else going on here. They obviously don't let people who work there like know what they're doing. I honestly never really saw anything, but okay. I would just theorize that there was some kind of other income going on besides just people booking time. And I know at One World Studios, they had rehearsals. So a lot of their bookings were weekly bands that would come every week and rehearse in the live room. And that was kind of the bread and butter of that studio. But then they would get recording clients too, like Citizen Cope, and because he was a friend. And then a bunch of other local bands would come record. I did a lot of work there myself for artists that I worked with back in the day in that area. So we we always worked at, at One World and then later, like I said, I started working at Avalon.
0: It is interesting, the rehearsal studio, recording studio combo, not unheard of, definitely. And definitely, right. I think one of the smarter ways to fill in the gaps for a studio.
1: Yeah, because those people can be clients also for recording.
0: Oh yeah. You know?
1: And sure. a lot of them were.
0: Well, so let's talk about... Coming out to San Francisco, how long did you stay at Avalon?
1: Oh, it wasn't a long time like one to two years, maybe because okay. then I came out here and then after I moved out here, then they closed like a year after that. I think,
0: and when you came out here, the sound healing was was that the first thing you were getting involved in?
1: Yeah, so when I came out here, there is a little special story involved in that. I was on the jam cruise in two thousand and Four uh-huh. With the owner of One World Studios, who was also in my band, and I also was married to him, <laughs> and uh-huh. we have a child. <laughs> okay. So there's a little studio romance there. But we went on the jam cruise. He was there hired as recording all the different stages. I had never heard of Jam Cruise, but we had a band, and so we thought, okay, let's get on. We'll get our trio frontline on the cruise, and then they let us play at breakfast. So we were playing these trio shows at breakfast on the jam jampers every day. And one of the days, Michael Frani, who I didn't know at all, he just turned around and said, oh, that sounds beautiful. Da, 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 da. And I was like, thanks. Turned back around and continued to play. My historical husband at the time was like, oh, you got to get that quote for our press kit. You know, we could really use something like that. So. Michael Frani was meeting with people on the boat one-on-one and I sat down with him and he was really nice. He gave me his number and his address and said, yeah, when you come out with your new album, send it to me and this and that. So I kept in touch with him, sent him our new album that was out called Peace by the band Roots Horizon. And then I kind of kept up with him. I said, hey, I'm graduating for college. I need an internship credit for my graduation. So we had to do something after all of our classes were done. Mm -hmm. We then had to do an internship to actually graduate. So I called Michael Frani and I said, hey, what's up? Do you have any, are you doing anything right now? You know, and he said, you know, I just finished Everyone Deserves Music. Or he would have had me work on that, which I found out later was done at Hyde Street Studios. So I'm like, I almost got to go to Hyde Street right away. But I was a couple months late for that. And so he hooked me up. With his producer, Jay Bowman, mm. who had been playing with him for a while until recently. I think he left the band recently. But Jay Bowman, he was so busy that he literally was like, I'm so sorry. Like, I can't do it again today. But go hang out with Maestro. And I had met Maestro. They shared a studio. And Maestro was like, yeah, you can come get some, some credit with me. Because I actually didn't live in San Francisco yet. I had flown out from the East Coast. I was here three weeks just for my internship. So I like needed to get this credit. <laughs> so Maestro actually came through. I did a couple sessions with Jay Bowman, but like I said, he was so busy. He was like, I'm sorry, I got to go out of town and do this and do that. And then we did a couple days, but then I did most of my internship actually with Maestro Curtis and he was like, come sing on this track for Clive Davis and come sit in on this sound healing session with these other students. And hey, let's go to the Globe Institute because he ran that with David Gibson, who was someone I knew from college because we used his The Art of Mixing textbook for college.
0: Was this the mixing with the balls in the air? Yeah,
1: thing? yeah, where you can see it all in the... I mean, it really, to me, I was like, oh, that was so easy to understand with that three-dimensional diagram. And then I found out Maestro Curtis had this Globe Institute school with David Gibson, and I thought, whoa, like, this is the guy I learned from in college. And then Maestro and David Gibson, they co-wrote another book I have now called The Art of Producing, So it kind of has a similar look to the art of mixing and it just explains the different things about producing and it's got mixing information in there as well. But the thing that really opened me up was I did this experiment with Maestro where he was doing color theory. So I wrote down what every color meant. And then during this three week trip out here, I also was teaching a songwriting class for another event. And I had never taught a songwriting class before, so I thought, okay, great, get to the songwriting class. I forgot paper, and so I literally asked (laughs) these people, do you have any paper? And they were like, yes. And they showed me it was every color you could imagine of paper. And I got this idea, oh, I'm going to do an experiment with this songwriting class. And so we experimented with colors, using a color to influence you to write your song. And it worked so perfectly, it just kind of blew my mind. Hmm. So, with all of that kind of added up on each other, I just thought there's just something to this area that gives me a little more than when I was on the East Coast. Everybody's highly in competition and rushing everywhere. And when I land there, still, you got it takes a couple of days to just be like, okay, like you're back in the East Coast. Like it's cool, like, worry, everyone's crazy and really aggro. And they're driving on the road like, get out of my way. (laughs) So I just thought the vibe here had something
0: special. What year was that?
1: That was 2006 or seven. Okay. And then I started working at Hyde Street after I actually moved here in 2007.
0: What were you doing at Hyde Street? Did you start engineering or were you assisting? Like, tell me about that.
1: Yeah, I started as an intern, you know, because everybody starts as an intern there. And I had just gotten my degree in recording from college so they were like yeah sure come on in i did wednesdays and you know i just basically started on the desk and then you would be assisting people people like gabriel shepard they were people that taught me things you know Mm. he'd be like yeah you can sit in on my session and you notice this you notice that and then i just started doing my own sessions that's basically just how it works and i just bring my own artists and clients into hyde street and I'm also considered a staff engineer as well. So,
0: mm-hmm. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com WCA30, you can follow the link They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Tell me about the learning curve though. I mean, you, you were exposed to studio, so it's not like you didn't know what was going on. Right. But at the same time, based on everything you've told me happening on the East Coast, it didn't seem like you had too much studio experience. So Hyde Street really was almost like the real training ground.
1: Yeah, I think probably before I came to Hyde Street, I was doing a lot of my own projects recording, mm. but also I worked with other artists as well. So I probably produced three albums before I came out here for other artists, Jacob Williamson, Dar, Stella Bata, and there was one, maybe Jennifer Moyer. I'm not sure. I think we produced mm-hmm. a few songs for her. So I had done a lot of stuff for myself, you okay. know, and then a few things for other people because I was still in college and you know, I didn't want to like mess up anyone's record. So right. I just gave them all really good deals and I thought they turned out really great. When I came out here though, I started working with other artists a lot more.
0: Yeah. How was the learning curve getting into the the groove of Hyde Street and and doing sessions there, learning the gear? Were you primarily in studio A downstairs?
1: Yeah, well, there was Studio A and then there was Studio D that we used a lot. Mm -hmm. I mostly was working in Studio A, but I would say for each room, I mean, you know, just knowing signal flow and getting experience. So I would go in there regularly with my band and I would be recording them all in the other room. And then I'd be sitting at the console with like, you know, an SM7 and... I'm doing the engineering and I'm doing the the vocal <laughs> scratch like at the same time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I did a lot of that just because I was able to get into Hyde Street pretty easily, either pay for it or I did work for them for trade. So that's one way I was able to really kind of cut my teeth with learning that signal flow and just all the outboard gear that they have and understanding the quirks of the Neve 8038 console they have redone, recapped the whole thing. So there's really virtually no issues with it anymore. But when I first started there, you'd be like, okay, well, this channel is not working and that channel this, and you'd be like switching out the EQs on each channel. Like, oh, that one's kind of scratchy. So let's grab one from over there. And I always thought that was amusing.
0: Yeah. When I was there last night, you know, I was asking, so does this all work? Because yeah, that's kind of a, a common thing to let a big need like that go. But they assured me, they said, oh, no, no, we have techs that work on it and keep it up to snuff. And
1: yep. Kevin Inc. He's there a lot. When I first started there, I actually helped solder a bunch of the outboard gear and some of the stuff they were adding to the Neve. I helped solder those things together. Mm. And then I started wanting to really learn about that tech world for the Neve, but it was just like, okay, this is crazy. (laughs) And you know, I learned a couple of things and just like taking a few things apart with Kevin and some of the other people there. It's really specific and tedious of all these little things and parts. And I mean, I like soldering, but there's a limit to all the other tedious stuff.
0: Well, and it's interesting because, you know, in the form I had you fill out for the interview, you talk about occupying multiple lanes. Yeah. And you definitely have a strong foothold as a musician, but I mean, to be a staff engineer at Hyde Street, there's definitely a skill level there you have to have. So yeah, how do you balance all that? Finding not only the time, but also the the motivation to balance, excuse the pun, but balance all those things.
1: I guess I use them when I need and... I feel like I'm always kind of doing some sort of project either in the studio or mixing at home or mixing at the studio. I'm not sure it even is balanced.
0: You just do what comes up.
1: When I need to do it, I do it. Like yeah. sometimes I have lots of sessions and sometimes I have lots of gigs and sometimes I'm out of town so I can't take a session or whatever. So there, it is a little bit of a different lifestyle than just 100% audio engineer just because I do perform and run a rock band. And I'd say one of my like crown jewels is what I can do with vocals, vocal producing and vocal coaching. So I'll work a lot with artists and I will vocal coach them or we'll work on like melodies or arrangements of songs. And so I get them ready to go in the studio so that when they get to the studio with that full band Mm -hmm. and they've got two days to track all their basics, they can do it really fast. And then when we come back to do overdubs, they're doing their vocals really fast. And I'm able to help, oh, do this one phrase with a longer mouth or open your throat a little more. You know, There's a lot of different techniques that when people are in the moment, in the studio, they might be nervous. Mm-hmm. They might have not warmed up. A lot of people don't warm up. And I'm just like, I'm so surprised at them a lot of engineers don't really know about vocals, and I've heard this just because people tell me, other engineers tell me, oh, I don't know anything about vocals. You know, they play instruments but they've never sang, or they, it comes to tracking vocals and they don't really know what to tell the vocalist. So I feel like in that way, yeah, I'm a big vocal producer. So a lot of times people will just bring me in and I'll come in just to track the vocal with the artist, and it's just like you don't have to do any work on the back end. Most of the artists that I track with, you know, we're not tuning their vocal. Maybe like a note here and there, but not every single line.
0: It's definitely a strength you bring to the table because, I mean, there's a subset of engineers who have no history with a musical instrument. Or, you know, maybe it, they dabbled, but they never, like, played in a band. They never toured. Right. They never—they they only recorded. and then there are those who play instruments and depending on that instrument they will bring that strength to the table right and to have somebody who can help with one of the the most important parts of music at least in western pop music as a broad term yeah that's that's quite the asset
1: thank you yeah i i'm releasing a vocal endurance training actually called own your voice so mm. that's You know, it's very affordable. I think I'm selling it for $97. But it just gives you all the basics of what you need to have a strong voice, how you warm up, like when do you need to warm up every time you're going to (laughs) sing, you know, basics of like don't drink cold water and don't eat a bunch of cheese and eggs like the day you're going (laughs) to. Or milk. Yeah, because it causes mucus and just little tips, things people may not know, keeping your neck warm and. There's so many little tricks and then also giving them a bunch of vocal exercises to do. This one is for this. This is for that. Helping them a little bit with the process of if you're going to record, these are things I suggest. I felt like that was just one thing that is lacking in if people are not sure where to start, Mm -hmm. then you can just be like, hey, start here. Start here and just build your endurance because it is really like a sport. I think a lot of people, they approach singing like they would approach guitar or something. It's just a little different, but even in guitar, you have to warm up your fingers so that they're warm. You can't just like roll in and do this crazy solo on guitar unless you're a little warmed up. You might cramp your finger. So just teaching those basics. And I find that a lot of, Vocalists I work with in the studio they just kind of lack those basics uh-huh so I found that to be the one thing that as I'm building my assets things I can have for when I'm sleeping right if <laughs> you make money while you sleep <laughs> right. it's something that I know so much about that I feel like I'm constantly telling people do this do that and I'm like all right I'll just put it all in one place
0: oh yeah let me ask you when you're recording do you find it hard to shut your mind off from the the musicality of things and focus on sometimes the technical things?
1: No, because I feel like I'm really technically oriented. Uh So I'm, I'm thinking of so many things at one time. I feel like that technical part is a part of that. It's a big part of getting the best sound.
0: I don't want to put you on the spot with any one client, but I think that we both could agree that... Not everybody that can afford studio time at a place like Hyde Street is necessarily talented. yeah. And I've definitely done my fair share of recordings of people whose music is not really my cup of tea. Right. And their talents are not equal to some of my other clients. So how do you handle that when you come into a situation where you're acting as engineer for Hyde Street and you're put together with a client who musically you may have nothing in common with Mm -hmm. and they have very little talent. How do you, how do you deal with a session that's difficult like that?
1: Well, I've been a music teacher for like 20 years. Mm. (laughs) So I think that I have a lot of empathy and kindness in those situations where, okay, I know what they need to get out of this situation. They want to get something good. And so I encourage them in that way where it's like, hey, well, why don't we try it again and do it like this or try it like that? Or, hey, let's turn the lights down and light a candle so you can get into the vibe. And, you know, like different things where you're kind of switching up the mood, but kind of encouraging that person on the other side of the glass and making them feel like they have that ability that they can get to that end goal Mm -hmm. that they want to do. I mean, there have been some sessions where I'm like, Well, we're just not going to get there today, (laughs) but I'll fix some of that. I'll do as best as I can when I get home and fix this or fix that. A lot of times it's like you get really good backing tracks and then it's the vocal that needs a lot of work. So that's where I feel like I shine. So even if an artist can't be perfect in that, I'll really try my hardest to get them as close as we can get to what they want to get. So maybe I'll ask them, hey, you know, give me a couple of tracks that you want to sound like or similar or you want your mix like this or like that. How do you want your vocal? Because you can make your own choices, but then with a client like that who maybe you may not know as well and they're just kind of like a random person and they don't really know you, you just have to be really clear about what did they want when they leave. And then I just do my best to give them what they want and make them sound better than they actually might sound, which yeah. is actually the coolest part about what we have now. I mean, I feel like it's a blessing and a curse because oh, yeah. you don't really, it's like a profile pic. Does that person really look like that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You don't really sing like that, but I'm going to help you.
1: Right. And so I feel like you can have an album out that sounds really good and you could go see that person live and be like, huh?
0: yeah. But a
1: lot of those people don't play live. That's right. They're just looking for something that, oh, hey, like I've had a bunch of clients that they want to record a song or they come in from overseas and they're just here on vacation and it's just like fun. I've had a couple of clients like that and that's fun.
0: It's amazing that you, I mean, you have these talents to bring to the table to really, as you said, help guide people who may not have the same experience as you. So I'm envious of, of the fact that you have all these musical talents that you bring to the table alongside with the engineering talent. Do you really prefer to be playing, or do you prefer to be recording, or is it just whatever suits your mood?
1: Well, I mean, I really like to produce and record together where you're, you have a say and possibly, because I feel like most engineers are they are going to say something at some point, and they are producing, mm-hmm. so... Most engineers do produce without getting that credit of producer. Mm -hmm. But I like to produce in that way where it's like, I'm not trying to make something my way, but more or less pull out what the artist, what they're going for and who they really are to get more of them on that track. And so I really like to just work with artists, I guess producing and recording. I like playing too, but it just really depends on the song and If I'm not the right person, I will hire somebody else. So, I mean, I can play guitar and piano and sing and certainly play those things on people's tracks. But I wouldn't say I'm like the big organ swell person. You know, if I need that person, I know who to call.
0: Right, right. So do you do you hire yourself out specifically for vocal production? Like if somebody says, hey, I'm working with this band and I need another brain on this. Can you come in?
1: Yeah, I do a lot of collaboration recording actually with Jamie, where Mm -hmm. we'll be co producing. We did this one band called Swamp Child. And, you know, we both went to their rehearsals, and I was doing a lot of the vocal producing for that vocalist. And we also worked on like arrangements for each song and different melodic twists. Maybe, oh, well, you're going down on this note, but it would really be impressive if you just went up there. And, A lot of newer artists, they might get a little nervous to go up on a note where they usually go down. Mm -hmm. But that impact is so big if you just were to go up, right, to that mountain peak of that note. And then you're coming back down dynamically. I like to pull that out and get someone to do something that they didn't think was possible when they woke up that morning. So... It's like, there's a lot of miracles, I feel like, in my sessions.
0: So so you enjoy that collaborative process with with another producer, another engineer?
1: I like it, but I don't like necessarily need to do it. But I do enjoy that.
0: Because
1: mm. I just, I feel like that teamwork, that saying teamwork makes the dream work. It's like having <laughs> more people on there. You're not going to make it any one way. It's really mm-hmm. just going to be like, That perfect way so you get more ideas.
0: Let's talk about the unfun part of all of this. Let's talk about the the survival and the money and the business. We both live in the Bay Area and I've made no bones about it. It is quite expensive to live here in the Bay Area. So how do you feel about where you're at survival-wise and piecing it together? Because from everything you've told me, it seems like you're doing my favorite thing, you're diversifying. You're doing a number of things for income generation, including, as you mentioned, a course that you have coming out. So tell me a little bit more about survival.
1: Well, I mean, I feel like being in the service industry, which we are, because it's hourly usually based, every month is different. I feel like every year, September is always my highest grossing month. And I'm not sure why, but I think that's It's like everyone gets go back to school fever, even though they're not going to school and they don't have kids, but somehow everyone's like, oh, I got to do this because the summer's over and then the year's going to be over if I don't do it in September, right? So September always seems to be like this really big month. And then with engineering and even private coaching, because I do that too, holidays are always like everyone's gone. Summers, everybody's usually gone, (laughs) you know, so it's like you start to understand, okay, September, I need to not spend all that money because that's your biggest month. So maybe you'd be saving half of that for when December comes and nobody's there. Or January is like one of the slowest months. So it's like if you can get used to that part of it, and like I said, as I'm developing more assets that I don't have to be around for, less service industry work. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of seeing the benefit in that. And then affiliate marketing and trying to build other income streams that aren't necessarily I got to be there for three hours or five hours or a whole day or whatever it is. I still really enjoy, though, working with artists at the studio. And I I actually think it's really affordable at Hyde Street. A lot of people think, oh, it's going to be too expensive. And then they find out and they're like, oh, that's it. (laughs) You know, to me, I think that that is It seems out of reach, but then it actually is more in reach than people think.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. Do you find yourself, you've kind of given me a clue. It sounds like you're a saver.
1: Somewhat. I mean, I think it's hard to save a lot because I don't make tons of money. Mm -hmm. It's not like, oh, I'm going to save $10,000 this month. That's not happening in in my world of diversifying creative talents. It's more like I save on the months that I can. And then those months that are slower, I kind of I'll use up some of that savings.
0: Are you affected by the desire to acquire gear, audio gear? No,
1: because I work at Hyde Street Studios and they have all the gear.
0: That's right.
1: So I'm like, I don't need any of that stuff. I got enough stuff at my home studio to be able to mix. And if I want to track here, we actually tracked, I don't know, I would say maybe a third of all the new music here during COVID. Hmm. And then finished it at Hyde Street doing drum tracking and other live guitar amp stuff. But I certainly have nice guitar amps at my house and lots of guitars and keyboards and interfaces and just any kind of whatever I need.
0: I'm going to include in the show notes a link to Mm PamelaParkerRocks.com. Great website name. Thanks. In case people want to reach out and have any questions, do you ever do any remote Vocal coaching or vocal yes. production?
1: I do all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll do people's me tracks. I'll do background vocals or sometimes lead vocals, whatever they need at my home studio.
0: Uh huh.
1: Really easy. And I do vocal coaching. I coach in guitar, piano, voice, and then I teach songwriting and I also teach production. People come to me and sometimes we'll be doing voice. But then I'll say, hey, you should really learn some basic piano because you should be able to pluck out your melody if you're learning music. It's really hugely helpful. So, you know, I, I can diversify my coaching also by someone who's learning guitar. They usually also want to learn to sing eventually.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, you know, here's an idea for my audience who is comprised of not only newcomers, but a lot of pros. If yeah. you feel like you need a little extra vocal help for your session, no matter where you are in the world, you might consider reaching out to Pamela to do it remotely. I mean, you could always, yeah. with the technologies we have between Zoom and audio movers help, you could easily plug exactly. plugged into a session to uh, help out.
1: Yeah, and I have audio movers at home. I've used that a lot, especially over the pandemic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It makes it so easy. I mean... Why sit in traffic, right?
0: <laughs> right, exactly. We're going to chime in via satellite, Pamela Parker now, to help with She's vocal production. She's on the production. moon. <laughs> right. Well, fantastic. Really great to talk to you, and super interesting to hear about not only your journey, but just the things that you bring to the table, which I think is not uncommon, but it's it just doesn't seem like most of the people that I interview on the show have the same breadth of, of strengths that they bring to the table. So it's, it's really great to chat with you about this.
1: Thank you. Yeah, well, I appreciate the interview too. It's fun to chat with you. Take care. You too.
0: Pamela Parker here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Remember, if you like the show and you want to help the show out, the best thing that you can do is head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. And if you have the time, maybe write something nice. That would be deeply appreciated. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical voice of Chuck Smith, Connect with me on LinkedIn. Feel free to send me an email, Matt at WorkingClassAudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about